So today we're calling all women in STEM and employees in the field, or really, if we're being honest, anyone who is interested in STEM or women generally in the workforce or anyone who's working. You know, this episode follows the same thread that we started in last week's episode, namely, how do we create inclusive workplaces, especially for women of color? And this week's guest knows all about that and more, especially when it's related to women of color and STEM. So this week, we get the pleasure of sitting down with Michelle Hayward, who's not only an engineer herself, but also the founder of Positive Hire. And we'll let her tell you more about that. To talk about diverse women in STEM, her own podcast, why unconscious bias trainings often don't work. Hello, anybody hear that and want to listen? Yes, please listen. If there's really a, quote, pipeline problem with people hiring diverse women and so much more. So get ready to take some notes and add a new podcast to your list. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misashi. Michelle, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Michelle Hayward, former civil engineer turned tech founder of Positive Hire. We specifically work to connect Black, Latinx, and Indigenous women who are experienced scientists, engineers, and technology professionals to management roles. I love it. What led you to start Positive Hire? Long story or short story? So I'll go <laughs> with the medium story. <laughs> I was in construction. I'm a civil engineer and I worked out in the field my entire career uh, while I was in construction, which was 12 years. And in that time, I'm away from the office. So in my mind, they're making people in the office are making all of these connections and they're getting all of these promotions and raises. And here I am working in this trailer out in the middle of nowhere, driving this dirty white pickup, building the power grid. And I was like, I need to figure this thing out. Like, how do I get promotions? Because I'm not where I want it to be in my career. So I reached out to other black women engineers and Latinas in my network. And they're like, wow, you know, your VP and your director. I don't know any of those people. Even within my company, they was like, well, I don't talk to those people. I just come to my desk, do my job and go home. And so I was so shocked that I was doing so well. And then I talked to some other women and they were saying, hey, you know, I was really doing great in my career. I went and got married, came back from my honeymoon and my manager was no longer supportive, even to the point where one woman said she was on maternity leave and got laid off. Like they call HR, called her in and laid her off. And she was like, she was having so many more barriers than her husband was. They're both black, but she was encountering so many different barriers. And I was like, this makes no sense. When you say you can't find us, why are we having to continuously go through this? And so lo and behold, my sponsor no longer was in the organization and I got let go. And at the same time, I decided not to stay. And you're like, how does that work? My senior director had never called me, never emailed me, didn't know anything really about me, but what other people had said. So we didn't have a relationship, but I had relationships with other people in the organization. And when I didn't, wasn't assigned a new project, it was like, oh, I'll get you on my project. I'll get you on my project. I was like, no, it was time for me to go because when your senior director is not supporting your career, the likelihood of me staying even after that project was very, very small. So I went ahead and left. And in that process, when you don't have anything to do, I don't know, maybe it's just because I was single at the time too, <laughs> um, no kid. I was like, there has to be something. So I was like, what if there was a glass door 
for us, meaning Black, Latinx, Indigenous women, where we knew companies that were inclusive, where we could advance our careers. We're not going to hit all of these barriers. And so that's how Positive Hire started back in 2017. It was just this idea of a glass door. It was like, but glass door is great. You can go ahead and read those reviews. Well, I'm an engineer. Did you know that 3.94% of engineers in the U.S., and this is a math problem, equals Black women plus Hispanic women plus Native women. That's combined. We make only 3.94% of engineers in the U.S., And to lose one or a hundred of a thousand of us is huge because it's such a small percentage. And I think it's really important to know that and understand the power and importance of retaining as many of us that want to stay because we've decided we wanted to go do something different as opposed to being pushed out. So that's really what got me to create Positive Hire. I love that. I mean, you answered my question about why STEM in particular, right? Because it's your stuff and it's less than 4% of the population. And then I loved that what you do is specifically open the door and open visibility to which companies are going to be supportive of that 4%. So I understand now why Positive Hire has this dual focus, but it leads me to ask this question. How do you vet the organizations that you led into that circle, right? Like to know that there are employers who, and I think this is a quote from your website, but who are diligently working to create or have created inclusive workspaces, like where you'd actually want to place diverse women? What are there specific things you look for? There are things I look for right now. We're looking at external markers as well as over time is building up the data and getting the experience from the women. And so the women really tell that story because my experience as a darker skinned black woman could be a different experience from a lighter skinned black woman. And so there are so many other factors that will come over time that we're working on. We're building out in our data set. But right now we're looking at markers. Number one, what have companies done historically pre George, the murder of George Floyd with their organization? And the reason and there's very interesting finding that I have. There are literally a study of about 23 to 25 companies over about a five year period that literally had a professor doing data analytics, people analytics on their organization. Some of these companies have been working in DEI specifically since like 1999 to 2001, and they had not made any significant changes in their organizations. What I found recently is that organizations that have really started to focus prior to the murder of George Floyd about five years are doing sometimes better than those that have been at this for 20 years. And it doesn't even matter like the budget to some of the organizations, like they have a team and they have a staff. But what I'm finding is those smaller or newer organizations that have this focus, number one, they have might maybe some Gen X, but also what they seem to have is they know the focus has to not only be on recruiting, but it's internal change right? Because you can hire all these people, but if you on your individual level haven't, aren't doing the work, it doesn't change anything. And I think that's number one is trying, and that's the harder part to find out who's working on themselves. But what we do look at is sometimes the activities around not community service, but programs. So what's really interesting, I know what I'm about to say is counterintuitive. There's a large tech company that is providing training to their black employees for leadership training, but they're also training managers who are not black on how to support 
your black employees for leadership. But this is a large, huge international tech company that's doing this. And so it's really important because you're seeing that shift. They weren't doing this for 20 years. Other organizations had, had started doing that work. And I think it's really important to ask those organizations and really kind of see. I don't really look at the diversity rankings because that's just those internal score sheets. And, and whoever turns in the report is the one who really does. That's how it ranks. It only ranks by who turns in the report. So there are some things we look at, but it really has to focus on who's doing the work and really getting the feedback and starting talking to the women and their experiences there. And if I'm seeing a lot of turnover in their DNI, I'll put it to you this way. Go look and see if they have diversity, equity, inclusion people and see who's turning over every two years. And there's one organization. It is very interesting. Even a, a couple of engineers I've talked to there, it's like, well, th that DNI person left. I was hoping they were going to stay a little bit longer. But they're like less than two years. It, Hispanic man, two black women, but the one white man has been there in DNI for 10 years. Thank you for sharing all of that. And oh my gosh, there's so many different points that you raised that I want to ask about. And I think that it's really interesting because sometimes people look at the length of time, right, that companies have been saying that they're committed to DEI work. But to your point, right, it's have they actually made any changes on the inside? And then if they are making changes, what does that turnover rate look like? Because if you're continually trying to bring in people to support, A, you've got some issues that you need to address, and B, you're not actually supporting and doing the work that you say you're going to be doing. So I think all of that is so important. And sometimes people tend to take those things out of context or leave that out of the equation entirely when they're looking at company success, or at least what company's stated success is in regard to this. You know, I want to switch gears for a second because I know you also have a podcast called Dear Corner Office. And I want, well, A, I loved when you shared the full original title with me, so which made me like smile super big. So if you want to share that with our listeners, I would love that. But I also want to talk about what led you to create this and how has that changed and evolved over time? So it's called Dear Corner Office because you can't fit the entire title on it. On the slide, it's not good. I don't know. Marketing is marketing. Maybe it would get people's attention. But the original title is Dear Bob, the white guy in the corner office who can't understand why all of his black employees quit. Right. Don't you love it? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's about as direct. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. But not everybody's name is Bob. And so, you know. So I took the Bob and a friend of mine at the time when I was coming with the side of her husband worked in marketing at very large companies, like just keep it three words. It's like, okay, dear corner office. Like think people get it and people literally I could just post like, oh, it's talking about this. I'm like, great, you get it. So I just went with dear corner office. Like the two of you, you have a three word and everybody gets it, right? So, but dear corner office over time, I started out talking about my experiences and that were very similar to the experiences of other black people, other Latina, Latinas, not others, but Latinas in the workplace and really other marginalized people. And even taking recent incidents out of the newspaper and really explaining them in a different vantage point that they may not be accustomed to hearing because they're surrounded by different people who have different vantage points and then getting stuff third hand and then reading reports, but not from somebody who's living the experience on a regular, on an everyday basis. And so that's literally how we started it. I started it. Then I brought in a couple people who explain like, what is a corporate culture gatekeeper? 
right? We want to make this change. Like, no, we don't do that. Things like here. And so how are you playing that role? Even though you're in the C-suite, are you remaining, keeping a status quo, but you're going to bring in a change agent and a chief diversity officer, but give them very few people on the team and a very small budget. And you're working out of the janitor's former broom closet because they got upgraded to their own office, something like that. So like, what are those things like? And so now what we do, we broaden it. Well, I don't say broaden it, but we bring in other people to talk about experiences from those same lenses. And sometimes it's about maternal health. So black women's maternal health compared to white women in this country is vastly different. And how many black women, I think it's 2.3 times more likely to die during childbirth. That's huge. And have all of these other issues. And the reason why I bring in these different vantage points is I get this so often because we do diversity recruitment as well at Positive Hire is we have great benefits. And I said, based on what? Well, our employees tell us, I said, what percentage don't tell you you have great benefits? And it's like, what do you mean? I said, those are the people that matter. Those are probably your marginalized people whose health care, your health care coverage is in a part of the city where it takes them two buses. They have to take a day off of work. And so they don't utilize it. And, so, and they look shocked, like, how could you say this? And so I bring up maternal health and things like that, because if you're selecting health care by the majority, who are you really leaving out if you're not paying attention to those people that are on the margins of that. And when I ever say this people, I'm an engineer, so I'm looking at a data plot, right? And so I'm looking at a regression curve in my head. So you have all of these dots and the dots that are furthest away from the line, you're ignoring them. Well, that's, that takes a lot of work. Welcome to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. It takes work. What do you then need to do to provide better healthcare for the black women in your organizations, for the Latinas, for the mixed, right? Children, um, people in your organization and their children, right? Because now they are having different genetics and oftentimes they aren't studied and doctors aren't really sure what to do, or maybe you don't even have the doctors they need in your network. And so you really have to then figure out how do you put together not just a workplace, but even benefits that are inclusive and it completely blows their mind. And so I come at it now from different perspectives, even had a financial planner who used to actually has an engineering degree, electrical engineering degree, and she became a financial planner and she wrote a book specifically about the drastic difference in finances for black people. And so when we talk about the pay gap, people don't understand how that truly impacts not just a family, but it impacts a community of people for generations. And we, we are literally pre the pandemic, we're what, 276 years before black women would see equity and pay, they would get that 200, how many, what is that, 20, 10 generations? So we talk about it in a lens sometimes when you can think about finances, it's easier to think about. When they have to work their CHRO, Chief Human Resource Officer, to select benefits and their other benefits people in the organization, it gives them a different lens to think about how to bring equity in their organization. And I think that's really important. And we bring in other people through people analytics, other HR professionals, and we'll do it sometimes in a virtual summit. And then we'll bring in those audio bits into the podcast, but just different lenses of what equity can look like in the workplace and it's not outward, it's not community service, 
is not donations. There are people in your organization you need to be bringing equity to in pay, in behaviors or behavior change, as well as in benefits and so many other areas. So that's what your corner office does. Don't you love that? Like we're so used to in America, like for those who've adopted, thank you for adopting children. But like, sometimes we forget to look in our own backyards and figure out who we can help in our own communities. And we look to far-flung countries or far-flung communities. And it's like, can we start by giving ourselves and our organizations and our communities a really firm, healthy foundation by looking out for each other first? And I think that that's what you're saying with this work. It's like, there's so many angles to look at DE&I and, and belonging in your own organization. Don't just use the lip service. I mean, community service is wonderful. And we need to also serve our own community and hopefully first. So, And I love the concrete examples that you gave. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine who does DE&I work for a large company. And she was talking about the problem with or there was a, a seminar that was presented on financial planning and wellness. And the, she was talking about the problem of not seeing that through different lenses, because that was a great seminar if you're white, but it did not take into account the different experiences of a lot of other employees there. And so that can't be your one seminar if that's what you're doing. That could be part of a, you know a series, but that can't be it if you're trying to talk to all of your employees. And so I, I think that the lens is so important because sometimes people are so convinced that they've got their, you know, talking to everyone when they're not. And, you know, I've been excited to ask you this question because there was a period of time, and I'm not going to lie, this period of time includes this year, where every interview that Sarah and I do includes this one question. And it's basically the question goes like this. What do you make of that survey monkey slash lean in study from 2020 that found that more than 80% of white employees viewed themselves as allies to women of color at work, yet just 45% of black women and 55% of Latinas say that they have strong allies in the workplace. So there's clearly a large numerical disparity between people who see themselves as allies and people who actually believe that to be true. So I would love to hear what you make of that statistic and what are your thoughts around that? Well, people, and first of all, you use the word concrete. So as a civil engineer, I really want to say thank you for that. The other part of that is people's definitions of allies obviously do not align, right? So for white people, an ally obviously means something very different to black women and Latinas. So we have to discern and decide what does that mean? And for me, I've actually started getting away from ally and I want you to be an abolitionist. I want you to put your reputation on the line. I want you to put your connections, your relationships on the line. I want you to put your, sometimes your life on the line, your financial well-being on the line. Now, I guarantee you, that 80% of white people say they're allies, it will go down maybe 8%. You will see a drastic difference. And so I think, number one, we need to be clear on what is an ally and how do you define that. And oftentimes it's like, well, I went and talked to Bob and said that wasn't a great thing that he did. Well, did you tell Bob how to correct it and what he needed? Well, no, that was a little bit too far. And so sometimes they're thinking white people being they that this action or this speaking up is enough. That's a step, right? What we're looking oftentimes from allies to do is actual change. And if you're not bringing change, 
how are you then helping me, right? And so I think that's really where we're looking for some people, I won't say all, it's looking for an ally to bring change, which is why I kind of get away from that because some people see allies and not as difficult. When I say abolitionist, it's like, wait, are you saying from like the 1800s? No, I'm saying from 2020. I need you to start being an abolitionist. And you're going to see a different set of people show up because they're putting something on the line. And a lot of times in allyship, they aren't putting anything on the line. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It reminded me, what was the word in that talk where it was about the there was a black woman climbing the flagpole and then accomplice accomplice. Yep. Accomplice and abolitionist. Yeah. And that idea of, of making change, you know, some of the conversations me, Sasha and I have when people are like, well, I'm talking to this person and they said something offensive and it turned into a fight. And we're like, they're like, can I stop this? Like, you know, when do I know how to change people's minds and make change? And we've sort of said, if you're talking to someone who is not going to change their mind, like we only have so much energy the point is to make change. If you're going to make people defensive, if you're going to yell at people, if they're not going to change their mind, that's not making change, then use your energy elsewhere. And would that seem like a reasonable thing to ask people to do is like, make the change. Don't just like do it for the sake of your pride or do this one scenario. Absolutely. So you're not going to, you're very rarely, you're going to change somebody's mind. If you see somebody wavering. And what I mean is like, well, what do you mean by that? They want to have a discussion. Sometimes even when people get defensive, they can still come back and reflect later. Not, But some people are just dug in into their values, principles, and their beliefs, and they're just not going to change. What I found is sometimes you find even older people who've always wanted to say something, but they've never had somebody else there to support them. And so sometimes it's those people you have to find, and sometimes it's just a book or a, now I want to say a, t- a Facebook post. <laughs> so that comes up and it's going to be someone that's going to DM you, that's going to message. Everybody else is having fallout because you posted it, right? But it's that one person that's going to DM you that wants to have conversation, wants to understand. Um, and it's not always younger people. People always, I thought it would be, the way first of all, they're not on Facebook, but you can then have the fallout on the page, on your post, but somebody's going to DM you because they want to understand more. And some people will comment on the post because they want to have dialogue. But I absolutely agree, don't fall into arguing with people, especially if you've never met them. But having sometimes discussions within your own network of what's going on, how to make change and what actions to take. And I, I'm always going to fall back to actions, not a t-shirt. That's great but an actual action like, hey, why are you following him around the store? Well, no, I'm not like, yes, you are. Because when I walked in, I walked in behind him. And so I saw you follow him. So I followed you follow him. And you've been following for 12 minutes. Here's on the video. Like, uh, and so things like that, calling people out like, hey, what I'll do since you don't think you were following him, I'll just post it. And we'll see how many people believe and agree with me that you are following And so you want to call people out. You want to have those actions. You don't have to necessarily get in an argument with the person, but you want to show them that they, what they did was not right. And then say, Hey, this is what you need to be doing while they were doing this. Somebody else just walked out your store with $300 worth of meat, but you didn't find it of value to follow them. And so you can point out different behaviors and biases that people have sometimes 
other times you really, and that's more of an abolitionist, right? Following somebody, recording them, following somebody else. And then at the same time, you can do, you can have conversations with other people that are really trying to learn and grow. And where do you find those people? There's some in your network. And, and it's very, very interesting. More of them are on TikTok these days, but still there are people that are willing to have these conversations. But again, you're going to have to pick and choose which battles to go against. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's what came to mind from no, thank you. That's absolutely. I appreciate that a lot. And we could totally sidetrack ourselves by having a TikTok conversation right now, but we won't. <laughs> but, you know, you talk about how unconscious bias training, as it stands in many companies, doesn't work, right? You just mentioned that people dig into their biases and there's nothing that you can do, nothing that they can do about it because hey, it's unconscious. Like, But there's an article that says that the key to making unconscious bias work is translating awareness into action. And like we just talked about, we're all here into this idea of action. So what do you think are some of the key steps individuals should take to uncover and address like their own biases in the workplace? It depends on what role they're in too sometimes. And what I mean is they did this really interesting thing. And this is something simple you can do. Take some pictures offline, mix them up and say, show me the engineer, show me the nurse, show me the stay at home parent. And then reveal who did what. Because if I full fro and makeup, you wouldn't know <laughs> that I was a civil. So there are certain biases that are going to automatically come up just from gender, right? Who has the PhD? And so sometimes it's plain Pictionary and because it doesn't seem like it's being rude or you're pointing people out. And then you go back to, well, what made you decide this person was X? Why did you determine this person was why and have those discussions, right? And that really then start, because it doesn't bring, it doesn't seem like it's a conflict when you do it. And I love doing this really easier with kids. I'll say this, I have a 12 year old nephew. I call him my mini me because he's very analytical like me. And a couple years ago, he was playing a video game and they're not paying us for it. So I'm not going to mention that we've dropped enough friends. <laughs> And he has to play in the living room because his parents want to see what's on the TV. And I was like, why is your avatar a woman? And he, he's like, because women do it better. And I was like, oh, very good. Very good. Continue, continue. <laughs> and so it really takes us sometimes to start breaking down those barriers as adults. And we take those same things into the workplace as kids. But then I have another nephew. He's like, he'll go, you throw like a girl. Like, well, I am a girl. How am I supposed to throw? And so you break that and you start asking questions like that to get people to start and reflect. Well, well, why do you even say that? Why does it matter? How else am I supposed to throw? And to really get people to start thinking and reflecting on that. Then on the action side, really asking, um, having them take actions, meaning did you do sometimes an X, Y, and Z? And what I mean by that, the last time you were in a meeting, who did you ask to take minutes and why? Who did you ask to reserve the room? And who did you ask to organize the meeting? And things like that and really get, oh, but you said 70% of your team was male, but yet 90% of the housekeeping duties for projects are done by 20% of your staff. How does that work? And so you, you start Sometimes when you start adding percentages and numbers to it, people like, well, and so you're not calling it like, okay, so how do we change this? How do we make this more equitable so that certain people are doing certain things? And then it's like, just make it every third, 
Thursday or T for Tom does it on, if it's on Tuesdays, whatever it is, and you just spread it out. And so now you're coming up with a plan with that manager or with that team to make things more equitable. But sometimes it takes you not necessarily pointing it out as it is positioning in a non-threatening way for people to take notice of what those biases are. And so Pictionary is really good. Everybody loves Pictionary. I don't have to read. I just gotta, I just have to remember the picture. Thank you for sharing all of those. And I love the examples. I think back to so many different times in the workplace where it was, you know, those things were happening. And I love that you bring this analytical, you know, data driven. And my oldest son is very analytical, all stats all the time. So I think but I mean, it's very hard to argue with those numbers when you're, you know, you're presenting. It's not just sort of, well, I've got this general sense that it's, these are the numbers, this is the gap that you have created. So I, I want to ask you about something else because we, and I think you mentioned it at the very start of this episode, like what do you hear when people refer to this nebulous pipeline problem? Because in my head, when I hear pipeline, I replace it with the phrase like need to work on hiring non-white people or sometimes curiosity problem or sometimes systemic racism problem. How do you address that? What do you sort of replace that with in your head when you hear them describe a pipeline problem? Air quotes, pipeline problem. Yeah, I heavily air quoted. Yes, pipeline. Well, I tell number one, it's a cultural problem. Culturally, you're not accepting. You're accepting if I'm a teacher, if I'm a nurse, that's acceptable. But culturally, you're not even going to Google search engines generally won't select me or bring me up as an engineer. And that's a problem. And so what I say to this is, which is why we're, why Positive Hire was created to fix this problem. And we focus specifically on women with 10 or more years of experience. Because if I can see somebody that looks like me ahead of me, I'm more likely to stay. And so it's a cultural problem because the people that are ahead of me or that were ahead of me were pushed out because they were not included, the workplaces were hostile to them, the policies were not inclusive, and they are gone. And it wasn't the pipeline that shut me off. It was the culture and it feeds back down. So when you're losing a third of women of color to cultures and lack of inclusiveness, the pipeline is the pipeline was flowing. That's not what killed a pipeline. The pipeline was slowed down by other barriers in the way of those women. But if that pipeline can continues, right? And what I mean is we're continuing to look ahead, not necessarily up, but ahead. I'm looking up, but ahead. Ahead of us, one year, three years, 15 years, 30 years. Oh, wow, she's old, she's like 50. And I'm 20, I'm in college, but she's been like writing in Fortran. Like that's ancient, right? And when you're talking tech and software, but she's been it for 30 years. That's ridiculous. I can do it then if she's been here for 30 years, but she was the one, right? That's the one or the two you found. What happened to the other 198? And I think if the more that you can find, you can keep up that 198, that one young woman at 20 that can find another woman at 50. Imagine if it's 200 of the ones at 50 and now it's, 10,000, 20,000 that can see the 200. That pipeline grows because they're able to see it. When it's only one or two left, fewer people are going to be able to find them and see them as an opportunity in that career. And so it's not the pipeline, it's the culture that pushed that other 198 
that started out. And so it's very, very difficult to grow a pipeline when the culture and the barriers keep blocking the way of that water. You're diverting the water. It's not the pipeline. Yeah. I mean, speaking of progress, where do you see the most progress being made, right? Like there's dismantling your own individual biases. There's like the systemic racism part and shifting it. So what are your thoughts about how sort of the systems and the individual forces come together to play? And then where should people focus their energy on making the most change? Themselves. The most change has to come at an individual level. Until you understand your own biases, your own racism, your other isms that you carry, and then that's the only way you can start taking action to make change. And so often we talk about policies and procedures and having laws, but how can you write equitable anything if you're not equitable yourself? You don't see the barriers that you, or the biases rather, that you already have. And so it's really important that you start at an individual level. Then you can start having conversations and taking action. Conversations is one thing and then taking actions to write policies and changes and procedures and building teams around what you know. And it's a consistent process, right? You don't all of a sudden unlearn something that you were taught for 40 years, for 50 years, for even 20 years. It is a continuous process because at first you're like, can't believe I believed that for so long. I feel stupid oh my God, I did all of these bad things to these people. And then it's the guilt, right? And so some people don't want to go through that emotional roller coaster, so they don't make that change. And then you have that, and that's the biggest part, right? Is that behavior change and getting through those emotions. And it's always wavering back and forth until you get to that point. Like, you know what? I can do this. I want to do this. This is why I want to do it because I know the change can come. And so it has to be at an individual level before you do that. Then once you get to the individual, you're at the individual level, this is the other thing I see a lot of people wanting to do. They want to tackle everything. They want to tackle hunger, lead pipe, fair housing, education. I always say go deep, then wide. And it's like, what do you mean? I said, focus on something local to you. Is it your educational food system? Is it a food desert? Is it access to certain types of education? Like, What is that thing? I said, because if you go deep, you become so knowledgeable in that area. People, and how you're going to know people, you're making change, they're going to start forgetting to invite you to meetings, right? They don't want you to be part of this board or this group to help do policy change because you know so much. When you kind of know some of everything, like, oh yeah, you can come to the meeting. They don't feel as though you're about to bring change. You're really making progress. And it's very important to go deep and be so knowledgeable in the area because when somebody says something like, oh, no, 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 that's not what we do here. This policy should read X, Y, and Z, not one, two, three, and this is why. And too often, especially starting out and make in social justice and social change and becoming anti-racist, you want to go across the board and that's fine. But you really want to go deep in one area to make the sustainable change and impact. I so appreciate hearing that because I am the wide broad right now. I'm like, I feel like it's so easy just in my life in general, right? I dabble and I've done all these things. And I I really appreciate the challenge to find that zone of genius, that zone of like personal community depth that you really feel compelled to make a change for, because I think that is one of the key things, right? Systemic racism is really a big, huge problem. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed. Like you're not going to be able to make a difference. 
And so to keep yourself personally going too, to get deep and be able to make change is the, I don't want to say reward, but that is making a difference. That's making yourself feel like you matter and can change these systems too. So thank you for that. The other thought I had in terms of motivation, you know, when we were talking about that Pictionary game and then the kids and like your nephew playing the game, it occurs to me that our norms growing up was like people in leadership or yet another white man, yet another white man, yet another white man. And these children who are coming up through the system now started a lot of them with a black president. Then they had Donald Trump. Then they had Biden, right? These kids and this incredible split and consciousness that these kids are growing up in with the rise of talking about normalizing pronouns. And like, there's so much that these children are more comfortable talking about than the adults are. So by the time they're the beginners, like they're in their twenties and being part of this corporate culture, this older generation that we're like, we want to be able to talk to them. So I feel like it's really important for us to continue to work on our own biases, like you said, in order to be in conversation with these change makers that are coming up too. I also love the idea of being disinvited or forgotten to be included to meetings. That, <laughs> that's a good benchmark. <laughs> you know you're making change when people are suddenly leaving you off that invite. I love that. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. What other things have we not asked that you think are important for us to discuss? I want to clarify something. So I said go deep and not wide you're still going to be wide. So you're still going to focus, have be educated in all of those areas to be anti-racist. But what I say go deep in is this is where you definitely going to make change. Because you still follow a person around the grocery store and like, hey, why are you following this person, right? But your lane is education and making sure, let's say even the kids in your school district are doing the pandemic, they're getting the three meals a day they need to focus in school and they have mask and everything else. What I would add is, number one, when it comes to what we call leadership, in air quotes, I call it management in corporations, understand a lot of people don't see you as their leader, right? A lot of people feel as though you're very removed from what's going on day to day in employees' lives, the larger the organization is. And so what I would encourage you to do is to actually reach out to a few people. I know your day's already busy, but I encourage you to reach out to people you probably would never reach out to. And I say this because it is very, very important because often people of color are your cleaning staff. They may be your receptionists. They're often the janitors, your maintenance people, and you literally take them for granted. But imagine if they didn't show up into that building. And right now they are probably unemployed. Did you even call them to say what was going on, what the plan was on an individual basis? Because it's really important to understand when you're talking about marginalized people, the larger parts of your organization that host marginalized people are the people that are often ignored and taken for granted in organizations. And so if you really want to get a pulse of what those people need, you need to be talking to them. And it seems anti-intuitive, right? Oh no, they're not revenue generating. Let your trash stack up for a week. Ask me how the revenue will generate in an office. Ask me if the phones aren't routed or when people would come into the office for meetings. So some people are still open, right? How, how did that work? I guess they would call whomever they were there to meet. So if they can get in the building, right? If somebody doesn't have to buzz them in. And so you really need to understand 
how your organization functioned with these people that you think were non-revenue generating and what impact they have on your organization. And so think about it at that level. And those are the people you really need to talk to. It's, I can't remember who, to, who had this story, but it was, I want to say it was a hotel chain. And they literally had a phone in the lobby where you could call the CEO. One person called this particular CEO in like a five-year period. They thought like, that, that, that won't ring to the CEO. It was literally the CEO's number. And so you need to be available at some level to your people. Call center workers. Oh my, they're still taking calls. They may be at home, but they're still taking those calls. It's really important that you understand who these people are, what their needs are right now, because you haven't pre-pandemic. And if nothing else, they're having being impacted the most by loss of life in their families. And your current policies for being out for, what is it called, bereavement, are very lacking culturally. And again, it goes back to the benefits. And so you need to understand what those are and really be talking to. And you're going to go to HR. I don't want you to go to HR. You want to go to diversity, equity, inclusion. I don't want you to go to them. I want you to go to HR and say, how do I need the phone numbers, cell phone numbers, addresses to these people in our organization. Because once you talk to them, you, un, you start to under, and they're not going to open up. Like you can't call one time, like, well, they didn't say anything. About the seventh time you call, they'll see that you're not going to let up. Like you really want to help me. You really want to take action. Take that action. Because right now it's great that you're writing policies, but you don't know what you don't know because you haven't gone out. You've hired somebody else to figure that out. And as a leader, every leader I know that I've ever worked with, They've known what Michelle needed. When I leave my team, my team tells me what they need. A priority is not a priority because I say it's a priority. A priority is a priority when I know what my team needs and then my clients. And I think it's been so the reverse. And so I highly encourage leaders to change that because that's really how they're going to bring some change to their organization. That really resonated with me because you're talking about being human together. Let's remember that every person that works in your company is a person. And it's a lesson that I was taught, not on a like diversity perspective, but from my dad, he passed away forever ago. But when we were younger, he would bake his infamous, like amazing um, brownies. They were amazing. And he would make multiple trays of them. And we would be like, we're going to have, and he would smack our hands away and be like, no, those are for the copy room people at my office. And then he would like, and these are for my colleagues. And then these are for you. And we, I remember asking him and he said, these are the people that make my life go around. Like I rely on their help. They're part of my team. There is no, I need to treat them as such. And you need to do that too. And I like, I remember that in a very like core part of my being. And so this is a slight jump in conversation, but related to a different conversation we've had in the past, because you talk about helping women in particular, right? With your business, we had a conversation about menopause. Is that and how so many companies ignore the truth about women's bodies changing? You know, obviously it changes during pregnancy and delivery. And this country is terrible in terms of supporting women corporate leave wise and for women's health. But on the flip side on menopause, it's not a choice. We all have to go through that too. Have you seen any conversations in that regard when it comes to policies that support that part of women's health? You're getting into ageism. So no, I have not. And oftentimes that biases of ageism come up because you hit like 40 and sometimes 30 now in tech where you don't even want to mention your age. 
And so ageism is real and I absolutely agree it needs to be addressed. What I'm finding is organizations are already lacking before we get to that part of our lives with healthcare. And it's like, wait, what are you talking about? And so even when you're looking at healthcare for older people, organizations are making those employees pay more. And so they're looking at it again as marginalized. Well, it's only 30%, 40% of our staff that are women. And right now only 18% or, or maybe a more because they're about to retire. They've been, we're not going to worry about it. And so they're pushing that. Nobody's really talking about it. Actually, that's a very good point. So if you build something around it, let me know. I'll push it out just because I'm pretty sure I'm in perimenopause. But it is definitely something that's part that's tied to ageism. And then you're talking about women. And so we're getting pushed out even further. But it's really important that we bring that up as part of those outliers again, that I, those little dots your healthcare doesn't include. And that's really important that we, we do bring that up and discuss it. But as far as I've seen, nobody's really focused on it. They're focused on IVF, which is great. They're really focused on more childbearing and their benefits, right? Because that's tied to youth. But when you're talking about menopause, it's like, ah. Uh, you're about done with your career while we offer this benefit to you. So yeah, it's a lot of work to be done. I think you're so right. I think it's that invisibility, right, of women at that time period, right? You're past the childbearing years and you just sort of fade into the sunset kind of like we are not going to fade into the sunset here folks yeah <laughs> no i know we're not we're not so we are here for all of that we could so clearly talk to you for another five hours michelle but <laughs> we want to make sure that our listeners get you know to hear more of your goodness so where can they find you linkedin is a great place if you're on social to connect with me you can always find me at positive co, and that's higher H-I-R-E, not red man, method man hire. And if you don't get it, then don't worry about it. But if you do get it, Wu-Tang for life. <laughs> oh, Wu-Tang forever. I'm sorry. See, now I'm getting old. I feel you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us today. It was so great to meet you. Great to meet you. both of you to have this conversation. I love it. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.